We're in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul's benediction here, verses 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for what we have heard already from your word. The two times it's been opened and read. We are grateful for being drawn into your presence through prayer already. Um, We're grateful for the chance that we've had to respond to what we've heard from you through song and trust that, Lord, you've been pleased by the faith expressed in your people as we have sung truth about you. And now, Lord, we come to the point where we um, we're hungry for instruction from your word and and we again, Lord, um, know from your word that you've designed this time to play a major role in our lives and in the overall life of the local church. So may you be pleased to use this text in us personally and in us corporately for our good and your glory, and we offer it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this text a number of times this week and thought how, how fitting of an end to Paul's recorded words to this beloved church, the church of Thessalonica. If, if you think back, what, what prompted his writing to this church in the first place was the fear of chaos and disorder in the church due to all the things that he's been addressing now for two letters, from persecution to deception to um, the product of that, which is theological confusion in their midst, leading to um, just life disorder in their midst. So now his, his closing wish to this church is of God's peace to come upon them and to continue to fill them as they continue to endure. This is the way that Paul opened not only 2 Thessalonians, but 1 Thessalonians as well, as we just kind of create bookends to this entire study of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Both epistles saying in their greeting, grace to you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but if you do a quick search of the word peace in both letters, you will find that his wish for God's peace upon this church is the way that he opened and closed both letters. So we've already read the grace to you and peace wish that opened both letters, but let's think back a couple of weeks now and remember how he closed 1 Thessalonians. It was chapter 5, verse 23, after he rehearsed His time with them, expressed his fears for them, attempted to clarify some confusion among them and set them on a right course theologically and subsequently in in life. He wishes upon them at the end of 1 Thessalonians, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that wish for peace in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, in combination with sanctification and preservation, it locates sanctification and preservation, or if you, perseverance, coming from the God of peace and prevailing in us in the context of a life filled with confusion and chaos and temptation. Outside of the God of peace who sanctifies and who preserves, we as his people inevitably outside of him spiral downward, ever downward into chaos and would eventually fall away from the faith. So if God is not a God who sanctifies and who preserves for our peace, for his glory, inevitably we would both live and die in total disorder and chaos. And now he says at the end of our letter, 2 Thessalonians, similarly, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. So just to begin to wrap this study up here, opening and closing both letters to a church being pushed by persecution and deception and tempted by theological confusion toward disorder and chaos, opening and closing both letters is his wish for the peace of God to come upon them. How fitting. The only other time that he references peace in these letters is in a warning in 1 Thessalonians 5 that chaos and disorder and confusion and deception will continue to be the goal of those who reject Jesus and despise his followers. 1 Thessalonians 5 warns the church that all the way up to the return of Jesus, there will be those who promise what? If you think back and remember, what do they promise? They promise peace and security. And where do they promise it? They promise it outside of Jesus. And one of the major lessons of the letters is they're not able to deliver on their promises. They will not be able to deliver on their promises because they themselves are deceived And therefore, they're lacking what they offer. And they're under the judgment of God unless they repent. And yet, interestingly enough, the very fact that the offer from them, as bogus, as false, as deceptive as it is, is of peace and security, does communicate an awareness of that which every human being everywhere inherently seeks. Peace and security. Think about it for a minute. Is there anybody here who doesn't care about, or who doesn't seek, or who doesn't want for you and your children and your grandchildren peace and security? So it is an appealing offer And it's a well-calculated offer by those whose motives are to lure us away from dependence on our God for these things. 
but coming from them, it is inherently flawed and it's destined to fail because it takes the God in whom peace is and from whom peace comes out of the equation. So just as a very simple application leaving these epistles, there is the reminder not to look for or expect or hope in or stake your joy on or accept the offer of peace from anyone outside of Jesus. If you happen to find a measure of it outside of him, it is short-lived at best and perhaps a benefit of common grace that even unbelieving people find a measure of peace and security in this life, but it is false at best and condemning at worst because it will set you on a lifelong pursuit of temporary fixes outside of Jesus Christ which never satisfy and will not last because nothing that anyone or anything outside of God in Christ can offer you in this life can transcend this life and is too attached to this life and it's shifting circumstances. Which means that peace outside of Christ and attached to such things as every one of us desperately want, such as health and money and security, will ultimately fail you. So it is a significant thing that Paul wishes for peace to a church who is in anything but a peaceful season. Think about that for a moment. He's writing to a church being pushed in every external way toward disorder and confusion. And he's wishing peace upon them, not because their circumstances have changed, but he's wishing upon them a peace that transcends circumstances because it originates outside of this life and all of its circumstances. And it's very real and applicable and prevailing in, in this life and all of its circumstances. It, it's also very significant that in 2 Thessalonians 3, that Paul wishes peace upon his readers from, quote, the Lord of peace. He wishes peace upon his readers from the Lord of peace, Instead of the God of peace, which is the way he says it every other time he locates peace in the being of God in his epistles. And that's significant, not because the Lord of peace and the God of peace are two different beings, but the Lord of peace here specifically locates the peace that he's wishing upon his readers in the person of Jesus Christ. In and from God, yes. But in and from God in Christ and in Christ alone. Outside of Christ, peace from God 
is an impossibility because outside of Christ, we are under God's wrath, which is the opposite of being the recipients of his peace. Outside of Christ, we are irreconciled enemies of God. And the determining factor between being an irreconciled enemy of God, destined for and under his wrath at the judgment, and being a reconciled son or daughter of God and knowing his peace, is whether or not his mind toward you has changed, not your mind toward him. He is the one who's been betrayed by his image bearers. He is the one who has been offended by our sins. He is the one whose just wrath burns hot against us and must be quenched or satisfied. And that happens no other way than in Christ, who is God himself come in human flesh and who was called in his coming by Isaiah the prophet in chapter 9 and verse 6 of his prophecy, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And the promise that is given there is that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And it closes with this phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And we know from God's word that when the zeal of the Lord of hosts sets out to accomplish something, nobody and nothing is going to stand in its way and prevent it. So the Prince of Peace, who is also mighty God, came in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And when he came, people recognized it for what it was. For instance, Zechariah, when after his son John the Baptist was born and Zechariah's tongue was loosed, Luke 1 says that he prophesied by the Holy Spirit that the one whom his son John would prepare the way for would, quote, give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Zechariah wasn't the only one. The angels recognized the same when they appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2 and verse 13 says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the prince of peace came. Meaning he brought the peace that is eternally in him with him to establish in his people and over the world a rule of peace that would have no end. And if you even go on to survey the life of Jesus over and over again, what does he do in his interactions with people? He visits people in their sicknesses and infirmities and trials and temptations. And what does he do? He heals them. He sets them free. And he says, what? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He says that 
And at the same time, he declares that he came to raid and divide and spoil the house of the enemy. But he came to his people saying, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we have in our text this wish from Paul toward his brothers and sisters in the church of Thessalonica that the Lord of peace would give them peace at all times and in all circumstances, meaning that he would give them a peace in non-peaceful circumstances that prevails over and transcends all circumstances. And what we're trying to do early this morning is establish that his wish specifically locates the peace that he wishes upon them in Jesus and nobody else. Because outside of Jesus, the world is condemned by its sin and destined for the just wrath of God forever. We've looked at a few passages that present Jesus in his birth and throughout his life and ministry as the Prince of Peace. That brought the peace of his kingdom and rule to man with him in his coming given to man by grace and received by man by faith. But all of that, his birth as the Prince of Peace and his life and ministry as the Prince that brought his eternal kingdom to earth with him at his coming and revealed it or extended it to man in his life, all of that was driving one direction. And that one direction was the purpose for which the Prince of Peace was born. Which was to secure the peace that he extended to his people in his earthly life eternally. And to do so precisely as God in human flesh by standing in the place of man as his representative before God and as God himself to stand before God sinlessly, and therefore to absorb a punishment that he did not earn, but took upon himself willfully on behalf of others, and by so doing satisfy the burning anger of God against us and reconcile us to his Father. And the fact that his Father's justice was satisfied, is unmistakable in his raising Jesus from the dead. Romans 1.4 says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 4 verse 25 goes on to say that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 proclaim this over 700 years before it happened. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Paul's wish for peace from the Lord of peace in 2 Thessalonians 3 is a reminder that peace is found only in Jesus, nowhere else. 1 Thessalonians 5 is a reminder that the world will continue to mistakenly, deceptively, alluringly offer what it cannot give. But what we will continue to be tempted by because it is what we all seek. Peace and security. But what we see in the overall prophecies about the coming of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, as well as in his life and death and resurrection, is that he has revealed the peace inherent in himself and characteristic of his eternal kingdom and has himself secured our eternal inclusion in it through the cross Through his atoning for our sins in his death on the cross and rising from the dead. So, if all of that is true, then why is this a very real wish for Paul? From Paul toward his readers. The implication of this as a wish, is that it may not be a reality or that it hasn't fully come or that whatever degree of it has come is under threat somehow. So, so the question is, how is it that the Prince of Peace came and brought and revealed and extended his peace and the peace of his eternal kingdom to man and his coming and accomplished the atoning wrath-bearing requirement of a substitute before God for his people and rose from the dead and ascended to the heavens where he continues to rule and reign over all things, how is it that Paul's readers or Christians throughout the early church or the dark ages or in the time of reformation or all over today's world continue to be in a desperate need of Paul's wish in verse 16 being a reality for them? As in the world around us is chaos and disorder and is threatening to continue to triumph and prevail everywhere you seem to look. Listen, listen to this verse. Is, is, is that question um, kind of overtook me for a span of time in working through this? Hebrews 2.5 served to be so so helpful. I I think Hebrews 2.5 captures the the tension between the Lord of peace coming, fulfilling prophecy of revealing an eternal kingdom characterized by his peace and the peace of his rule and his accomplishing peace for his own by standing in our place and absorbing the wrath that our sins had earned and rising from the dead and ascending to the heavens with the promise of his return, the tension between all of that and the reality of life of ever-increasing downward 
spiraling in this mm. world into chaos and disorder. In Hebrews 2.5 stepped in and said, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That was a, that was a quotation from Psalm 8. And the writer of Hebrews comments in verse 8 of Hebrews 2, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, yet at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. You feel some tension there? The passage goes on to explain how Jesus was made like those for whom he would taste death, namely mankind. Jesus was made a man so that by his sacrifice he would secure us, sanctify us, bring us to glory, and destroy the one who had the power of death, whom Hebrews identifies as the devil. So in those accomplishments, the Father has subjected all things under the feet of the Son. Jesus has accomplished the salvation for his people fully, completely. He has secured them forever. He has atoned for our sins. He has defeated death. He has destroyed the devil. All things are subjected to him and under his feet already in that it's a finished work. It's an eternal guarantee. But it's design is that until Christ returns and banishes death and hell and Satan and gathers his people to himself, the banishing of death and hell and Satan forever in the lake of fire being described in Revelation 20 and gathers his people to himself, the design is that until then, his people might live as citizens of his kingdom of peace under his peaceful reign, being recipients of the peace that is inherent in his being and that was secured for us in his finished work on our behalf and that until he returns, we would live by faith in him and his accomplishments and reveal his eternal kingdom of peace to a world that is spiraling out of control into greater degrees of chaos, more desperate expressions of disorder, and in so doing, we, as his people, invite the citizens of this world to become citizens of another kingdom. Through faith in the Lord that brought us peace by the blood of his cross. Hebrews 2 describes Jesus as our high priest. who both stood before God on our behalf and made propitiation for our sins by the sacrifice of himself, and who continues to stand in his resurrection before God on our behalf. 
as our high priest to confess our name. And Hebrews 2.18 says, In this life of chaos and disorder and confusion and temptation and threat that Jesus himself, because of how he came and what he suffered and what he accomplished, that Jesus himself is able to offer real help to us in our sufferings and trials and temptations. He alone is our Lord of peace. Paul wishes that the peace that comes from him would be constant. In other words, continuous, ever flowing, ever coming, ever being received by his people. May the Lord of peace himself give to you peace always and in every way. So, so mostly everything that we've said so far today has been an effort to locate with Paul the peace that he wishes upon his readers in the person of Christ and to magnify his accomplishments to secure it and to even see him now administering that peace to us through his accomplishments as our high priest. But Paul even goes a step further at the end of verse 16. And he shows us how this actually happens. So I, th- I think that we probably have an idea of why he prays what he prays and the basis on which he, he prays it, which involves everything that we've said about Christ. But I think the end of verse 16 focuses on how we actually feel or know, or experience, or live in, or reflect, or reveal the peace that Jesus is in himself eternally and secured for us at the cross. And it's captured in the little statement, the Lord be with you all. It it should rush you back to Isaiah 7. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which, according to both Matthew and Luke, means God is with us. Which was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. But what did Jesus himself say as his earthly time with his disciples began to wind down And he began to get more specific with them about what was to happen to him and to them and what they were supposed to do after he was no longer with them. He said these words. He said, I'm I'm leaving, but I will not leave you comfortless. I'm leaving, but I will not leave you comfortless. Our passage, may the Lord who is peace, secured our peace, dispensed to us the peace that he is and bought on our behalf. How did he do that? Well, he did that positionally by dying for us. 
But he does that the way Paul prays he would through his continual presence with us, which Jesus said would be fulfilled after his departure by the person of the indwelling spirit. The Lord be with you in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, I think, is Paul's way of identifying exactly how the peace that comes from the Father by, by virtue of his wrath being satisfied and his peace now being dispensed through the Son, who came as the Lord of peace and died in our place and satisfied his Father's wrath and purchased the peace that he now mediates from the Father to us, comes through the person of the indwelling Spirit. I think that's what he means when he says, the Lord be with you all. May the Lord who is peace and secured it for us forever, may he give you that peace, dispense it from the throne through the mediator, but by the person of the indwelling spirit. That's how you experience prevailing, transcending, non-circumstantial peace in your everyday life. So the peace that Paul wishes for us in this life of testing and trial and chaos and disorder and confusion is a peace that is transcendent and prevailing and triumphant because it comes from a God who transcends all things and who's prevailed over all things and who rules all things and who is Trinitarian in his being. Each person playing his own unique role in keeping our hearts which are so easily distracted and tempted and lured away from peace and lured into seeking temporary expressions, disappointing shadows, devastating deceptions. The Trinitarian being of God himself both secured and keeps and promises to keep forever Our hearts. He promises to keep forever our hearts in, in perfect peace. As I believe Isaiah 26, is it? Prophesies. As our minds remain fixed on him in all of his kindnesses toward us. Paul signs off in this letter with his own signature of authenticity. It says here that it was a, a common trademark of his. And he, he closes this letter by wishing grace upon them one last time in writing. There is every indication that Paul revisited these believers briefly on his third missionary journey. There's every indication, no indication otherwise, that the church in Thessalonica it's, itself endured and, and flourished. But there is this everlasting word from God to us that came to them during a specific point in their history that is so helpful for us that Jesus is the church's king of 
peace. Which is actually a song that we have sung here many times and which is a song that I think reflects First and Second Thessalonians as a whole very well. So I, I would like to close with praying that God might dispense to us the peace of Christ by his Holy Spirit who indwells us even as we as a church continue to trust in, in him. Just listen as we close to the words of the King of Peace. Lord, your children have not been spared. From this world's daily trials and cares, we know weakness, fear, and sorrow, yet we're not alone. You are near in our time of need. You are faithful. You hear our pleas. You give grace to all who hope in your mighty name. King of peace, you calm our raging storms. All we need is found within your arms. We find rest by your quiet stream, King of Peace. We were rebels against your reign. We were haters of your great name when you saved us from your justice and from ourselves. You gave life to our hearts of stone, made a way for us to your throne, where we lay down all our burdens at your feet. King of peace, you calm our raging storms. All we need is found within your arms. We find rest by your quiet stream. King of peace. And we stand upon your faithfulness as we trust in you. So the message of First and Second Thessalonians and my message to us is stand. Christ fellowship. Continue to stand by faith upon God's faithfulness in Christ. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep our hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus, which is the end to which I will now pray and ask you to join me. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you. After spending the time this morning to rehearse again the, the price at which our peace was purchased, it came at the cost of the eternal king of peace coming into this chaotic world, being so unjustly treated by man, 
and then absorbing in himself the full weight of the wrath of God that we deserved. And Father, we come before you just offering up our the awe in our hearts that your satisfaction in the accomplishments of your Son is demonstrable in his resurrection from the dead. It's without question. We are glad to leave here reassured this morning that you offer to us through Christ in this life a peace through him by the indwelling spirit that transcends every circumstance of life, good or, or bad. And that what we experience in this life is a taste of the eternity of the peace of Christ as we are promised to be kept by you forever. So we give many thanks for this and trust that it might provide for us further thoughts and meditations and and, and prayers as we disperse here today. In Jesus' name.